Hey, uh, welcome. Glad you're here. Uh, if you're visiting with us, I uh, hope you've already experienced and maybe uh, you'll continue to experience uh, a people that uh, are pretty, hopefully, um, honest, um, genuine, um, a people who love the Lord inconsistently sometimes, but for the most part, really, with everything we've got, love the Lord. Um, I hope that you kind of experience what we experience really each week as part of one another. And if you're ch- searching for a church home, I, I say this often, and I really mean this. I, I think every church is different, and the things that they're great at are different. And there may be a, you may be in a process of searching for a church home, and this may be a, your one visit. I want you to hear loud and clear from us that we're cheering for you as you find a place to land, because church matters. I, I don't know how anybody could function without it. I, I mean, I, I get how somebody that doesn't know the Lord could function because they don't know any different. But the thing that baffles me is how people could love the Lord and say they love the Lord and have a, a relationship with him that appears to be an, uh, an awareness of who he is and what he's done for us and not walk with the people who are like-minded. That baffles me. And we live in a community that's full of that. So if you're here as part of that community looking for a place to land and this is your, this is your one visit, man, keep looking and land if this is one of a, a few visits and the Lord leads you um, to search, uh, search us out further, man, we're an open book. I, we, we, of course, are convinced about where we are, but it's conditioned by humility um, that there are some great churches in our community. You have a lot of great options. And if the Lord should lead you to stick around here, um, that would be a blessing. I'm going to be preaching from Ephesians chapter 5 and 6 this morning. So you can go ahead and turn there. I'm going to pray, but uh, you can go and kind of be at the ready. Um, I'll give you some page numbers over the course of the morning, too. If you're not accustomed to using a Bible, if you, even if you don't have a Bible, I want you to grab the one that's in the seat back in front of you, and you can call that one your own. That, that can be yours as of today. And I'll give you the page numbers over the course of the sermon from that particular Bible it probably won't work with all the other Bibles in the room. So you could try it. You might be kind of close. It's page 978, Ephesians chapter 5. And that's the page number in the Bible that's under the seat in front of you. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we want to first of all lift up another church in our community. Lord, we do cheer for great things to happen in and through the local churches in our community. And specifically this morning, we want to pray for Mount Olive Church and Reverend Slack Brown. Lord, we want to lift up Slack and just ask you to bless his family. Lord, I pray that first and foremost, that start with his marriage. That as a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church, that it would be growing and healthy and strong and vibrant and blessed. And that from those resources and that storehouse full of blessings that it would overflow into his ministry, Lord, and that would overflow into the pulpit, uh, into counseling ministry, into whatever role that he has over the course of the week, uh, that it would be fueled by worship that first of all plays out in his marriage and his home. Lord, we pray for Mount Olive Church, too, that they would catch some of that, that it would be a blessing for them as they, too, endeavored to invite you into their home and walk with you in their marriages and their lives and their families. Lord, we pray that the result of that is that Mount Olive Church will be a bunch of folks that as they deploy on Sundays and they go back into the workplaces and back into their neighborhoods, that they're leaving salty, bright, and aromatic. And they're taking good news with them, hope, 
meaning, purpose, identity. Lord, I pray that all of that, all the result of that will be that people catch it or that you will draw people to you through a, a faithful ministry. Lord, we pray the same thing for us this morning. Just pray that you would work that in us, that we would be salty, bright, and aromatic for the growth of the kingdom and the glory of your name. Lord, I pray in these next few minutes for, um, uh, I pray that this, this sermon will be a help to folks. I pray it'll be an encouragement to folks. I pray there'll be a perspective um, that will bless marriages and bless families and bless just all of us. I'm just turning this over to you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We've had 11 sermons on the household code. Uh, the household code is a section of scripture, a passage of scripture that begins in Ephesians chapter 5, 22 and goes through chapter 6, verse 9. It's been, a, I think, a feel like a wonderful journey for us. I think we've really been able to walk away with some wonderful things. And this morning, the first part of the message, I'd like to read the passage, and then I would like to sort of draw just a few of those things out that we gathered up in this passage, and then I want to take us maybe a little different direction to help us with some application, beginning in verse 22 of chapter 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body. And is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as, as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bond servant or is free. Masters. Do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. This section of scripture that we've been considering um, 11 Sundays is the 12th 
Sunday that we're considering this passage and really sort of tying it up is full of what are called imperatives, Greek imperatives. If you know what something, if you know what that word means, this someone says this is imperative. In the Greek, when an imperative is used, it's synonymous with a command. Okay, so we'll call them commands. There are a number of very clear commands that come out of this passage. You may have been paying attention this morning if you're hearing for the first time. If you've been here over the course of these 11 or 12 sermons, then you probably can go right to them. But I want to just point them out to you. Wives, submit. That's the command. Wives, submit. The next command is husbands, love. And obviously those are fleshed out in the passages that follow them. Husbands, love. The third command or imperative is children, obey. The fourth is fathers, do not exasperate. And the fifth is slaves, obey. This is what we considered last week. And the last one is masters, do. And we figured out last week that masters do pointed to masters treating slaves in a way that reflects the way your master treats you. Speaking of how the Lord treats masters. Last week we considered something that I really feel like is... uh, Um, important. We consider a a motivation as we go about each of those roles, and we actually gave it a parking place, and it was admittedly a little bit of an academic term, but I'm not afraid of an academic term, and it's not something that should turn you off, and you should consider it as a parking place for a new thought. And the word we introduced last week, or the phrase, was Christological motivation. Okay, in each of these, in wives submitting, in husbands loving, in children's obeying, in fathers do not exasperate, in, in, in slaves obeying, and in masters treating their slaves as if recognizing they too are servants of another, that there is a motivation that connects to that. The ancient pagan wives submitted to their husbands, but they didn't do so for the sake of the Lord. That's what was shocking to me in this study. You have this image of some sort of ancient context where they're all running around the woods or running around a cave beating on rocks and shouting at each other. The ancient pagan home in the Roman Empire was well-ordered. And wives submitted to their husbands, but they didn't do so for the sake of the Lord. They did not have a Christological motivation. They did not, that was not their driving influence. They did it just because that's what folks did. It's just the cultural standard and the cultural norm in their context is that wives submit to their husbands. And then husbands loving their wives. Just let me show you a few of these motivations. Chapter uh, 5, verse 25. I just brought out the first one. Wives submit to your own husbands in verse 22 as to the Lord. There's a Christological motivation. Verse 25. Husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Look down at chapter 6, verse 1, the next motivation for children. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Christological motivation. Verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Christological motivation. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Christological motivation. That's what distinguished Christian servants from pagan servants. Simply the motivation. 
See, pagan servants obeyed their masters as well. And then the last one, masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And he's not going to show partiality. Christological motivation. Man, one of the things I just want to just show you is a nice image, I think, that sort of developed over the course of the week. Um, I thought about it since last week's sermon, and I thought that it might tie in today. So I'm going to introduce you to a little image that we're going to build on later. Let's go ahead and put up that, that slide for that last appeal that's made to masters. Okay? That um, Paul points out and reminds the masters that as they have uh, a responsibility, as they have charge over their servants. Notice that line right there. And I brought my handy-dandy laser because we're going to use it today. And plus because I just enjoy it. And any, any, any excuse to use it. So you see that really thin line right there? See, you wouldn't see that unless I use this pointer. Right? It's awesome. Now, um, Paul reminds them of that relationship, but he, or he, uh, that, excuse me, that, that relationship's obvious. The relationship between master and servant. Here's what he reminds them of is the next relationship. Okay, hit the big, the big arrows. Okay, we're going to build on this later, but I want you to visualize what he's reminding them of. The Christological motivation for the master to treat his servant with respect and treat them like they're a human being and treat them well is because they both share a master. And that master is the Lord. Okay, you can turn that off and we'll um, come back to that later. The thread throughout these indicatives, excuse me, these imperatives are the indicatives of what Christ has done. Okay, indicatives are these truths about who Christ is and what he's done that fuel imperatives. Indicatives that fuel Imperatives And the thread throughout that distinguishes the ordered Christian home from the ordered pagan home wasn't order because they're both ordered. But it's the motivation of Christ. Christ's motivation is what makes us Christian and what transforms, listen to this, daily activities that everyone in the world needs to do into something that we can call worship when Christ is the motivation. Man, that's huge. I don't... I hope life groups had a great time discussing that this week. I hope families spent some time considering, hey, what are we doing? These sort of daily things that we do as human beings that could be called worship if we invited Christ in. I shared last week that um, Luke and I, uh, Jerry, other, uh, a, lot, a lot of the guys, or some of the guys here, like to ride bikes. And Luke and I were under conviction, or I was under conviction, uh, that I wasn't bringing Christ into that. And... Just the idea of praying before a bike ride seemed kind of weird, um, but we're halfway through our first ride after, after that Sunday, last Sunday, and Luke said, hey, Dad, we hadn't prayed yet. I said, oh, you're right. So we didn't close our eyes to pray or we'd have crashed. But I prayed while we rolled, and then Luke had to remind us again the next day, and then we're halfway through a race yesterday when we realized we haven't prayed yet, and we prayed while we're rolling through a race in uh, north of Dallas. So, man, what a great opportunity all of us have to import and invite Christ into those spaces that you feel like are just separate. They're not separate, or they shouldn't be separate. And when they're not separate, we can give it a, a word, and it's called worship. Okay. Now, I planted a little bit of a seed just now where I was talking about imperatives fueling indicatives. I didn't really develop that yet. I've developed that some in the past, but I want to spend just a minute sort of developing for you what that looks like, because you may not be able to conceptualize that yet. 
I thought about just an example. Um, when I was a younger man, um, when I was a young man still living at home, my dad on occasion would talk to me, and he would begin to talk to me referring to he and my mom in third person. Okay, and you knew it was a very important talk and very um, heartfelt talk and one that I really better pay attention to when he would say, son, your parents love you. You know what I'm talking about. When, when parents move into third person, something's about to go down, right? Son, your parents love you and will support you in everything that they could possibly, in any possible way that they can. Um, so then the indicative, and that's the indicative, your, your parents love you. And the imperative is apply yourself in school, the command. You see how the indicative of my father and mother's love for me and the provision to really set me up for success then transfers to the application of a command or imperative to apply myself in school. Okay, Indicatives have a nice way of fueling imperatives, and this one is full of indicatives. I want you to just take that Christological motivation then flip it backwards and see how this plays out. Here's the indicative for wives submitting to her husband. Okay, wives, you're reminded in this passage that Christ is the head of uh, the husband. Okay, so there's the indicative. So the imperative is now submit to him because he has a head too. Okay, the indicatives fuel the imperatives. For the husband, uh, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So, husband, love your wife as Christ loved the church. See, the indicative of what Christ has done for us fuels the imperative. And it fuels the imperatives given to children to obey. And for fathers, do not exasperate. And for slaves to obey. And then for masters, here's the indicative for masters. Christ is your master and theirs also. So, treat them in a way that reflects the way your master has treated you. One of the things I've enjoyed about last week, it sort of tied things up and introduced that Christological motivation. We kind of hinted at it all along as we moved through the household code, is that it's so tidy and linear. I love things that are linear. I love things that go in order. I love, I'm not, I mean, some of the engineers in here that work at L3, I know you like that. I'm not an engineer type, but I do like that linear stuff. I like when something's clear. I like when something is tidy. And this passage so far has been uber tidy. Here's what wives do, and here's the motivation in doing it, and here's how it should go down. Here's what husbands do. Here's your motivation in doing it. Here's what children do. Here's what's expected of them, and here's why. I love how tidy it is. I feel like now we can really get something done now that we've spent the last 11 Sundays considering it. We've really put some nice boundaries and lines around things. We've got a good sense uh, that everybody knows their part. So I was kind of thinking at this point, this morning could be kind of a a lights, camera, action. Everybody's got their script. We spent 11 weeks in the script, and we know our part. We know our lines. We know where we're supposed to stand. Everybody knows their role, and now we can start the play. I've shared this story um, or this insight with nearly anybody that will stand still and listen for a few minutes over the last few weeks. But I haven't shared it from the pulpit yet. In the course of the household study, in the course of the household code, I've come under severe conviction 
I, I hope you know that pastors, preachers come under conviction from their own preaching often, ideally. But I've come under severe conviction that these roles that I've known for some time, I taught through Ephesians years ago, been reading my Bible a long time, it's clear okay, that these roles that I, um, for at least in, in my marriage, 23 years worth of marriage, I've known Christie's part well. And I've known my part well. And I've known my children's part well. And I realized as I'm preaching through this over the course of the weeks prior that we've considered in the past, that in some ways I've treated my wife and I've treated my kids like there's actors in a play. And to be really honest, like they're actors in my play. I don't know if the play's about me, or maybe I'm the director. You know, the director guy that wears the French hat, barking at everybody. I, I don't know. But I've been able to visualize how this has gone down in my life and in my marriage and in my family. Where I've treated my family, human beings, like they're just actors in a play. Hey, hon, um, let me remind you of the script. Can you go back and listen to that sermon that I preached a few days ago? It was clear. The lines are obvious. Your lines. You know where you're supposed to stand. Can you get back over there into your spot? Man, I'm, I'm telling you what, I'm good at it. I'm good at knowing everyone else's role. And I'm good also at following up when somebody steps out of their part. Some people call it gifting a prophet. I don't know what. Sometimes it's gifting of being a horse's butt. That's what it's called. <laughs> Spiritual gift of a horse's butt. Man, I've come under severe conviction that a lot of aspects of my life, a lot of roles, I've treated people like they're actors in my play. Actors in my play. And I'm ready to remind you of the parts and the script. At times, I think, too, I've treated folks like they're uh, machines. Like they ought to be fixed by now. I like stuff that I can buy that lasts forever. Okay? There's no such thing. But there are garments from a company called Filson that if Filson sells it, I want it. Like one of their logos is, might as well have the best. And it's not fashionable. It's just the kind of jacket you're going to give to your grandkids. You, like you wear it your whole life and you're on your deathbed and go, here's my Filson jacket. <laughs> I don't know why that appeals to me so much. It's because I don't like fixing stuff. When I buy it, I want it to work and I want it to last, but we can treat people like that. And parents, can you, have you ever done this? How many times do I have to tell you that, son, before it's really going to click? Like you ever learned something on the first time. And like you as an adult don't still need to hear things over and over and over and over again. But we can treat one another like we're a bunch of machines, a bunch of inanimate objects, a bunch of uh, like uh, pieces of wood. We're going to fashion you, fix you, and then we're, we're done. You play your part as a table. Man, I can do it. I can do it with the best of them. And when you stop playing your role, I'm going to put on my little French hat. 
and I'm going to tune you up. Man, I've come under severe conviction that in some ways, having the knowledge of these last seven, excuse me, 11 Sundays worth of roles, that we could be dangerous. We could be dangerous with that information. Wielding it with each other like a bunch of directors, like a bunch of mechanics just fixing everybody. I have two things this morning that I hope will be a help to you that have been a help to me. Um, I, I, I wasn't really clear on a good name for it. These things that I thought maybe, you know, if we had a Christological motivation that should condition the household rules, that maybe this would be a human motivation. And I didn't really like that term, so I thought maybe a love motivation. But love is just so overused. You know, I love hamburgers. You know, I wish that was more potent, you know. But maybe we'll call it love motivation. Or call it anything. I don't care what you call it. As long as you realize there's something else that's got to be part of this conversation. We've got these rules and we've got these roles and we've got Christ in fueling all of it, but there's got to be something else in there. And that something else is what I want to talk about in just these next few minutes. Turn to the book of Romans, page 948 of the Bible that you have in your bottom of your seat in front of you. Romans chapter 14. I, just, I want to spend the next few minutes just giving you two helps. Two helps so that you won't be dangerous with the, with the information that we've considered over these last 11 weeks. Two helps. Okay, here's the first. From Ephesians chapter 14, I'm going to read 12 verses. So you're going to have to kind of work at listening at it, or listening to get the sense of what's being said here. I'm going to draw out two passages from this, this, this excerpt I'm going to read. Beginning in verse 14. As for the one who's weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not, yeah, yeah, you vegetarians. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Now listen to this key verse. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. This passage is about the weak and the more mature, the weak and the strong and among the church, among the people of God, the, the immature in their faith and the very mature in their faith. Okay? There's a continuum. Okay? You might be married to someone that's at the weaker end, or you might be at the weaker end, and you're married to the one at the stronger end. Okay? It's a continuum across the room. All right, listen to what he says next. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks, gives, gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again that he might be both or be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? That word judgment means condemn. 
Why do you condemn your brother? Are you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Look back at verse 4. Verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Who are you to condemn one another? I had just this image, this picture of us walking around with our clipboards and the way we can move with one another, and we can do this in our home too. Walking around with our clipboards and our sharp pencil, and we're taking down notes. I had an image too of how it probably feels to be on the receiving end of that. Go ahead and show me my gymnast. That's probably a little bit what it feels like. You're out there doing backflips to try and please your master and your servant. And you got people in the cheap seats over there with scowls on their face, with their sharp pencil on their clipboard saying, huh, five, 5.4. Man, this image stuck in my mind because I'm not the guy flipping most of the time. I'm the guy sitting behind her, and Chrissy's the one in the air. That's the way it's going down in our home. Chrissy's doing backflips, trying to feed people, (laughs) clothe people, get people where they're supposed to be, get people in college. And here I am sitting there with my pencil and my clipboard, analyzing how she's doing or not doing Man, who am I to condemn the household servant of another? I wonder what the whole process would feel like if gymnasts graded and judged other gymnasts. Like while they're in the middle of it. Like she lands and she turns around and she's got to land or she's got to judge someone else who's in the air doing their flips. I bet it would be conditioned by a little bit of grace and charity other than the guys that are just sitting in flowery beds of ease with their clipboards. Man, you can go ahead and turn that image off. Bring back that that first image that I introduced this morning. This one, this is where we, I told you we're going to come back to this. Okay, Paul's encouragement in Ephesians chapter 6 to the masters is, Masters, let me remind you something. That servant that you're the master of is is. Uh, the servant of ultimately our master. Okay, master, you have a master too, and y'all share that same master, hence the bolded lines right here. What's interesting is that's not the first time that Paul ever used that reminder to make a point. He used it right here. Did you see it? Did you notice it? Look at this passage in verse 10. In verse 10, it says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or do you, are, are you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. The reminder in this passage is that we all share a master while we serve in our different roles. Go ahead and develop those next slides. Master servant, there was, first thing we considered this morning. Now we got husbands and wives. Okay, here's a little, art, little tiny little line here, and parents and children, tiny little line. Here's the reminder for whatever role you sit in. Here's the big lines. These are the things that really matter. Boom. 
Do these things matter? Absolutely. We just spent 11 weeks on those relationships between parents and children, husbands and wives, masters and servants. But if it's not conditioned by the reminder of the human element, we're not dealing with actors in a play. We're not dealing with machines. We're dealing with fellow servants who will stand before their master just like you will. We're dealing with fellow gymnasts that are also in the air doing backflips and doing the very best that they can to please their master. And they're not doing it perfectly any more than you are. Does anybody else need to be reminded of that? I don't think I'm the only person that needed to be reminded of that. Man, these bolded arrows... I think we need to see as the ultimate relationships that should drive our movement in the home. Things get all kind of out of sorts and all kind of out of order when we want to take these little small arrows and make them the big ones. We're supposed to leave the big ones, the big ones, and the little ones, the little ones, and that will bathe our relationships with margin and grace and charity Husbands, you'll be patient with your wife if you'll see her as the servant of another. If you see her as your servant, man, you're going to live a life of disappointment, and so is she. Instead of, my wife isn't playing her part, and I'm sick of it. That's what it sounds like when you make a little thin line a big line. Instead of that, how about this? Men, consider this. My wife is struggling to serve our Lord in her role I want to be an encouragement and a help to her. If you see that bold as the biggest line on your page and that bold relationship between her and her Lord, man, that's going to help you think that way. I want to be an encouragement to her. I want to help her. I want to pray for her and look for the lovely and the commendable and the praiseworthy and tell her how she's moving well. And imagine the tone in the home if men were thinking that way about their wives instead of walking around thinking about what they're not getting. Man, if men are thinking about these big bold lines, these right here, this one right here, between husbands and wives, they're thinking about these big bold lines more than they're thinking about this little bitty line right here. I think what it's going to make for is a man that says, man, I want to understand her struggles. I want to understand her fears. I want to know how I can be a help to her instead of her judge. How do you think that's going to leave her, men? You think that's going to enable her and help her, maybe even empower her? I don't know a person in the world that that makes lazy. Maybe that's our fear. We'll make somebody lazy. If we just want to focus on encouraging and helping, I don't think that makes people lazy. I think it makes them feel like they're not alone. If men are asking, women are asking, and the parents are asking, even these children are asking, the master servants are asking, how can I help my Lord's servant? Instead of what am I not getting? And why am I not getting my way? And how come things aren't going my way in this play called my life? It'll give wings to the struggling. That's my promise to you. It'll give wings 
to the struggling where they won't feel alone because you came off like a fellow servant rather than the fixed that sit in the seat of judgment. The bold arrows are ultimate. They're ultimate. The second thing that I think would be a help to you is in 1 Kings chapter 17. You can turn over there. That's on page 298. And I wanted, here's the question I want you to consider in these next couple minutes. How has God, your master, loved you? How has God, your master, loved you? I love this passage, this section of scripture in 1 Kings, 2 Kings, or 1 Kings 17, 18, and 19. It's the story of Elijah, and Elijah is like a Jewish ninja. I mean, you read what goes down in these chapters, you're like, man, he makes Chuck Norris look like a chump. The kind of stuff that happens in these chapters are just stuff that I, I mean, if there may be a movie, I've never seen it, but if there was a movie, I would, I'd be there because I just enjoy what went down. It starts with Elijah in chapter 17. You can kind of look at the headings there and get a sense of what unfolds between 17 and 19. I'm going to read a passage in 19, but let's sort of gather up what's happened up to this point. Elijah has predicted a drought, and guess what? There's no rain. Midway through chapter 17, he, uh, he, he asks a widow and her son if he can live with them. They've got no food. They can't even feed themselves. She's going to make their last meal with the last bit of flour and oil that they have left. And they're going to eat that meal and die is what she says to him. And he says, you know what? This jar and this oil won't run empty. I mean, some pretty awesome things happen. The son dies. Elijah brings him back to life. I mean, amazing stuff is going down. He raises the widow's son from the dead. And then the next chapter, chapter 18, he confronts the wicked king Ahab like a boss. It's awesome. And then, I mean, really the high point, in chapter 18, midway through, you can see the little heading there in verse 20, the prophets of Baal defeated. What a great story. Elijah is really getting it done. I like especially how the thing ends, like in verse 38, where you're seeing fire fall from the sky. Elijah's sacrifice is up there, and it's soaked. He's got water all around the altar, and fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust even and licked up the water that was in the trench. And Elijah then, in verse 40, says, Seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. That's what I'm saying. He's like a ninja. This guy is unstoppable until you get to chapter 19. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he'd killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, "So uh, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then... Um, Elijah, like a boss, was um, unimpressed and just considered that no threat at all. That's the way it ought to read. Given the way the ninja has moved up to now, but that's not what it says. Then he was afraid. 
all that Elijah had faced, and now he's afraid of this woman called Jezebel. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba. In verse 4, but he himself, he went a day's journey into the wilderness beyond Beersheba and came and sat down under a broom tree and he asked that he might die saying, it's enough now, O Lord, take away my life for I'm no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. Okay, Elijah's done. Just take in the story so far and go, this is just crazy that this guy would act this way. I've got my clipboard out, and i got my sharp pencil, and I'm saying, 4.5, dude. You've nailed 10 after 10 after 10, but this is a 4.5 right here. That's the way God ought to be, right? Come here, Elijah. Let me remind you of all that I've done. Knucklehead. That's not what he does, though. That's not the way his master treated him. It says, an angel came to him and said to him, arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. A cake. Now, I'm sure that was like a bread, you know, some sort of, you know, like a tortilla looking thing, you know. What do they call them? Non-bread. I want to think of it like an Emily Higgins cake. Like this big old beautiful cake sitting there, you know. It would have been really, really welcome at this point. At his head, like he doesn't even have to move. He just turned his head. It's like right there. This big old cake baked on a stone, like a hot stone. I mean, we're talking, that's, that's sweet. And a jar full of water. Man, I wonder, I bet it was even cold. And he ate and drank, and he's so tired, he lays down again and go back, goes back to sleep. You ever been that tired? Where you wake up, and you're like, man, I'm going to eat. And then you go right back to bed. I'm so tired. I'm so done. That's Elijah. That's the ninja. Like, man, what has happened to you? And God, instead of berating him, and God, instead of condemning him, and God, instead of doing all the things that we so easily and readily do to one another, sends the angel of the Lord. He comes to him again a second time, and he touched him and said, Arise and eat. Here's some more. For the journey is too great for you. Man, what a tender What a tender, kind, and good, and gracious God that we serve. This God that ministered to Elijah, he's our God too. He's also the God of the other role players in your home. And oh, that we could be as gracious and kind to one another as he is to us. Jerry Morris and I talk about a lot of this kind of stuff when we're on the bike riding Jerry said something the other day. He said, we don't know why we do the things we do. We were talking about this sermon or something related to it. He said, we don't know why we do the things we do. That's something I think that will help you as you deal with one another and each other's roles. Saying, you know what? She doesn't understand why she's feeling this way. Maybe instead of me pulling out my clipboard and my sharp pencil, I should just put my arms around her and say, honey... Are you okay? Honey, can I help you? Can I serve you in some way? Honey, I'm right here. It's going to be okay. Let me get you a cake on a hot stone and a jar of water because I'm going to be to you as our master is to us. And I'm right here. 
what a wonderful ministry we could have to each other. Because we don't know why we do the things we do. If we said things like this, son, come here. Are you okay? How can I help you? How can I serve you while you're going through this season? How can I be a teammate to you as a fellow servant of our master? There's no way of knowing how the Ephesians handled this, this household code. We don't have a clear shot into how things went down in the weeks or months afterward. But we do have some sense of what happened in the Ephesian church some 30 years later. The book of Ephesians is unique in that we do have a report card about 30 years later on what unfolded there. In Ephesians chapter, excuse me, in Revelation chapter 2, there's a letter, another letter to the church at Ephesus, but this one's not written by Paul. This one's this letter came via John, or yes, came via John from the Lord. It's like a report card from the Lord for the, to the Ephesian church. Listen to what he says in this report card in Revelation chapter 2 to the angel. We're about to have our supper, so I want you to hang in there. I want you to get this because I think this is sort of a, I'm going to tie this all together. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, Ephesian church. 30 years after this letter we've been studying was written to them. I know your works. I know your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil but, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. Man, I know how you're, you're killing it at hating evil, Ephesian church. 30 years later, uh, man, evil didn't even have a chance around you because you hate it, boy. And you're doing a good job. You're winning at identifying false teachers. Uh, Ten, boy. You're winning. Now, okay, he can, he can hold up the blackguard. Okay, let me, let me, the metaphor that I do want to invite now, that the Lord actually can do this. He can judge our works. And it says of the Ephesian church, you're winning also at patience and endurance. And in verse 3, he says this, I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. Ephesian church, man, you're really killing it at some stuff. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. What that passage in, in the, the original language, it says pretty clearly, you left the love that you had at first. You're not doing the things that, that you used to do that used to condition all that movement. We don't know exactly how that unfolded. We don't know exactly how that played out. But the love is sort of ambiguous. Okay, we talk about love for one another or love for God. They're inextricably linked. So we know for sure we're talking at least about a lack of love for one another that also means a lack of love for God. You're killing it at hating evil. You're winning at identifying false teachers. You're winning at endurance and patience here 30 years later, but you left the love that you had at first. I'm wondering what a CF report card would look like, and here's what I hope it looks like. If 30 years from now, CF report card, say the Lord shows up, and here's the report card for Crosspoint Fellowship. You hate evil, Crosspoint Fellowship. 
winning. I hope so. I hope that we're winning at that. You can ID false teachers from a mile away. I hope we can do that. I hope we can recognize what false teaching is. I hope 30 years from now, I hope we can do that right now. You're patient and you are enduring. I hope that we endure and go the distance 30 years from now in our report card. But what I would hope for also is you know the household code and everyone knows their part and knows where to stand. Okay? We just spent 11 weeks on that. But that it would also say, and those rules and those roles and those relationships are bathed in love and grace and margin with one another. That's what I hope for. That's what I pray for. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we can be a people that have been conditioned by big, bold lines that recognize the kind of master that you've been toward us, every single one of us. And that those big, bold lines will temper how we handle ourselves in those small ones. Lord, I pray that we can see ourselves as a bunch of gymnasts in the air. And a bunch of gymnasts who at times do speak to one another and encourage one another, but don't condemn one another. Lord, I pray that we as a people in the home and in whatever context that we're in, as the people of God, that we can be an encouragement to one another, not treating each other like machines, not treating each other, just reducing one another to playing their role, but to actual people who are doing their very best to serve you. Lord, I pray this sermon will be a help to somebody this morning. I'm praying these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's go ahead and distribute our elements.